Welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, Jennifer Loudon. I'm so happy to have this bonus episode for you. It's been a long time coming. It is an interview with my client and lovely friend, Lauren Fleshman. Lauren is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time, and she is the author of a memoir that I coached her on the first draft of called Good for a Girl. Even if you're not an athlete, please stick around. This is not about running. This is about writing. This is about fulfilling a mission. This is such a fascinating conversation, and it's about writing when you're depressed, also something that I helped Lauren through when she was writing this memoir. It's also about how do you write something that's super personal when you also have this really big mission weighing on you. I think you'll find this one of the most fascinating podcast episodes I've recorded. I wanted to start by asking you, why write a memoir? Because that happened before my time on the project, right? Mm -hmm. You sold the project before I came on board. So why a memoir? There were big problems in my industry and in my immediate world and surrounding world. And I was trying to figure out a way to solve them. I tried advocacy through the board of directors at USA Track and Field. I tried writing a blog, doing different things like that, mm -hmm. social media. And it just felt like it wasn't moving the needle enough. And memoirs seemed like a way that I could take my specific story and try to tell a propulsive sports story that also helped solve the problem. And that's also, you know, it easily could have not worked. It's really mm -hmm. difficult to make change. It's really difficult to get people to read books, but it ended up being like a good instinct to give that a shot because it's worked pretty well. There's two places that I want to go. One, I remember when you and I were coaching that you're like, it's so important to me that there's a bigger message in this memoir. I'm just not interested in writing my story. Yeah. And so that's clearly the motivation was to create change in the industry. Do you think having that bigger message and that bigger motivation made it harder to write the book, easier to write the book, or just yeah. different? I think it did both. Like, it definitely gave me a sustained passion for the project mm -hmm. where I might have just given up if mm -hmm. I didn't have that bigger objective in mind. And I, and I really didn't feel like I had any other ideas that could help solve or contribute mm -hmm. solutions outside of the book anymore. So it did that in a positive way. But for any creative listening, that deeper why, whatever it is, whether it's a big mission like Lauren had or something very personal to grow your business or to get out a story that's burning inside of you, feeling into that energy, that why, that's something I ask my coaching clients to do all the time. I'm a broken record about it. We have to believe in our own work in a deep way, not in a blind way, not in a fall in love with our words, or if you're a painter or a filmmaker, whatever you're doing, we have to take constructive criticism and feedback, and we have to be willing to change and grow and work on our craft without being defensive, absolutely. But we also have to have this deep advocacy and belief and like almost like burning. It can be a very quiet burning, but a burning that we tap into and that we feel. I tell myself I am not allowed to entertain the thoughts that I will not finish my novel that I'm working on. I'm just not allowed. When those thoughts come in, I'm like, go, bye-bye, bye-bye. And I feel into as much as I can in any given moment. What is it that's really motivating me? Where's the pleasure here, the learning, the love of these characters? Whatever it is for you, whatever your genre, whatever your medium, that feeling of deep why, that motivation is your fuel to keep believing and to make the magic happen. Then it added a lot of pressure because mm -hmm. it just felt like this book is about so much more than just telling my story. And how am I going to do that, quote, right 
you know, it's, it's a difficult way to do that through craft. So like getting that right mix of personal narrative and expert voice and mm-hmm. uh, research and all that stuff. So, so it added a lot of pressure and then <laughs> so that would be paralyzing sometimes. <laughs> I remember trying different things where we would try just writing the research or the big idea, the big message thread as its own document, mm-hmm. just so, and then starting to weave it in. But a lot of the weaving in happened with your editor after I was off the project. Can you remember any of that process, what that was like? Because I think it's yeah. one of the things that writers listening will be really interested in. Well, I think your suggestion to break it into sort of parallel narratives rather oh. than try to master the craft of interweaving them right away, that was proving to be very difficult for me. But your suggestion to separate them out, create two different timelines, even three timelines. There was like the history of sport. There was kind of my research, women's sport, the research timeline, and then my personal narrative timeline, Mm -hmm. and then be able to see where places overlap, which personal stories did the best job illustrating the research, which historical moments overlapped best with my personal moments. And so I think that, you know, the trick of any memoir is figuring out what stays and what goes It's really Mm -hmm. difficult to let go of certain stories that are meaningful to you, but don't serve the larger purpose of narrative. But that exercise of creating those separations made that, I guess it gave me enough emotional distance to just Mm. be cold hearted. But even so, I was really lucky that once I got a draft done where we did that, that I had an editor who had a good eye to like cut even more out and be like, Mm -hmm. hey, interesting story, but no, (laughs) you know, you've already said this in five different ways and just help me be more ruthless. I have my writer say to me all the time, I do it to myself all the time. Like, why do I keep repeating myself? Why did I say this in so many different places? And yeah. I think part of it is amnesia. We forgot we said it. I think some of it is we're making it clear to ourselves and we just have to keep writing it to get it clear. Yeah. Um, but it's just such a natural part of the process to repeat ourselves. Yeah. I think for me, I, I, when I was doing that, I had these big points I wanted to hit home and I mm-hmm. just didn't know yet which stories we're going to do the best job of bringing that home. Mm. So that's what's helpful about it. the drafting process is that it's okay to repeat yourself because you don't know yet. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you don't know until you've written the whole book where the best place is for it to go. And yes, it's nauseating to look at all the places <laughs> you wrote it. Like when you're actually reading your own draft, it's like so painful because it makes you feel like a terrible writer. I- but I do think there's a reason why you put it in so many times. And I think that's okay. It's just, that's, that's another reason why it's helpful to have another set of eyes that can come in and be like mm-hmm. gentle with you. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. I see your repetition. It doesn't mean you're a bad writer. You're trying right. to play with where it goes. And you're trying to understand the idea. I think that's the other thing that I'm always nattering on about with my writers and myself is you're building ideas. You're building a case and yes. it's, hard. It's hard to do that. And of course, you're going to repeat yourself when you're working on a book that is connected to such a big purpose, Mm -hmm. that you're really building this argument that women's sports have to change, that they are being coached and approached in a way that is damaging for girls and women. It's going to take some revision. Yeah. And then when you're talking about your life, you know, it takes a lifetime to learn the lessons and put together the puzzle pieces of the lesson. And so when you're going back in your life and telling little moments, I don't even think the human brain can know without this experimental process of putting it down. Like, when did you really, truly get it? Was it when you were 37, 45, 13? Mm -hmm. How much did you get it then? But if you're trying to plant the seeds for the thing you eventually fully understand or understand the best you can, 
you have to kind of plant those seeds at early ages and like, but not fully release mm-hmm. the whole message. Right. That's because you tough. didn't, you didn't no. know it then. It no. wouldn't be honest and you also wouldn't be creating tension. Mm-hmm. You said a few moments ago that the hopes that you had for the big idea in the book are having an impact. Can you tell us more about that? And because that, yeah. you know, the name of the podcast is Creating Out Loud. So that seems like a really good example of creating out loud. <laughs> I was writing this with the idea of young women who are currently in that world, picking it up and reading it, people who care about the young women who are in sport or people who once were those people trying to make sense of their experience later in life. And so it was, I had that, those audiences there. So that for me, I I don't know exactly what you want to bring forward with the creating out loud, but I like couldn't escape the fact that it would be witnessed. It would be ingested. It would be Mm -hmm. judged, maybe not by hundreds of thousands of people, but probably at least a couple thousand people. And so what was great was that once the book got out there, I got just floods of personal messages and I'm still getting floods of personal messages from people who are reacting to the experience of reading it. And they're seeing their relationship with their body in a new way, with food. They're recognizing dysfunction in relationships that have long passed and seeing how that has carried through and impacted them later in life. Like all these subtle ways that the sports system combined with our patriarchal culture leave wounds and scars on us as we come through the system. So it's cool to feel like you're helping people turn on a light bulb on something. And then that can stop the intergenerational trauma of it. Because if Mm -hmm. you can see how it worked in your life, you're way less likely to contribute to the problem than somebody else. Are you seeing it change the sports coaching conversation? Definitely. There has been several like things that I've seen online promoted that are coaching clinics for coaches based on the ideas in the book. Awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's it's great because I didn't intend to do all of that work. I can't lead all of that work. Um, It needs to be done virally in little communities all over the place. And so it's fun to see people picking that up and going. And then I've also seen a lot of people buying the book, like booster clubs for teams, buying the book for an entire team or alumni buying the book for their old team, just going ahead and having them delivered to the coach's office that you can find online. And I haven't seen high level change like the NCAA changing anything Mm -hmm. yet, but I think that it's the kind of movement that requires, it's going to be a bottom up movement. And so you're going to have a lot of people just saying, Hey, I see these things they are happening right in front of our eyes all the time. It isn't okay. And we need to ask for more from our administrations, our coaches, these programs, and even just sometimes just more clearly feeling the courage to say, Hey, that's problematic behavior. That behavior Mm -hmm. was kind of gray area before I read Mm -hmm. this book, but now it's very clear to me how that's harmful and I'm not going to let it just float by. Yeah. Would you give us an example of that for people who haven't read the book, which by the way, I'm making very bad host. Good for a girl, a woman running in a man's (laughs) world, the New York Times bestseller. And when I was coaching you, I told you it was going to be a New York Times bestseller. You called it. You called it. I mean, you were like, oh, you're so full of shit. Well, you know, sure, there's a coach. I am a coach of runners. Job is to like have your athletes feel confident, but also you don't want to betray their confidence by being unrealistic, you know, but you're such a a seasoned coach that I was like, well, I don't think she would blow smoke because it would erode the trust. So I think she really believes in this project. So thank you. Yeah. But an example. So this is a pretty specific example that doesn't mm-hmm. apply to like a ton of people. Something that's common in in like high school teams when they have to travel to compete in a cross-country race or something like that, they'll need to stop for meals. 
like the bustle pullover and stuff mm. and like that. One of the big issues or the probably the main big issue in my book is that female puberty is pathologized in mm. women's sports. So as soon as these young women's bodies have changed from their girl body, which is tends to be slimmer and more genderless to their mm-hmm. realized adult form, which is more feminine and curvy and softer on average during those ages, especially in those first few years of puberty, that coaches look at that and think of it as faulty, that they should be trying to, if they're committed athletes, stay lean and -hmm. essentially look more like the male athletes. And there's this overall framing that becoming a woman is inherently uh, opposed to athletic excellence, which is completely wrong. It's total bullshit, right? But there's just a lack of knowledge out there. Coaches will say things, will try to police their athletes' meals. Like nobody get any cookies. And and they'll often just do it to the girls' team. No ice cream, no cookies, no French fries. And on college teams, it gets very extreme where they have even more control over your lives, but they'll like just call athletes out if they're ordering something like, should you really be eating that? Like public humiliation. And I'm sure high school Mm. coaches do that too. And a lot of body comments, like you look a little soft. Did you get lazy over the holidays with your Mm. nutrition or whatever? Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember the scene. I think, I know there's one, there might even be two in the book when your order a fries with your hamburger. Uh-huh. And I think, was it when you were touring schools to yeah. decide which would be the same, like a school that didn't have as much eating disorder built in to the yep. program? The other runners watching the fry going from your plate to your mouth. <laughs> oh my gosh, their stares were going straight through me. I just, to me at that time of my life, ordering a burger and fries just did not seem problematic. I was like the second fastest high school runner in the nation. I was running well. I felt, you know, good in my body and I'm eating fry and they're all staring at me like there's a bug on it. I thought, (laughs) am I about to eat a fly? And, you know, that came from a culture on their team where coaches and other people in charge were highly discouraging of certain kinds of food because they were blaming those food choices. What really was happening was puberty but they were blaming the women's food choices for the physical changes that happened with puberty. One of the things that you said a moment ago about how the book is creating change just really is the model for how change happened from the bottom up, each of us taking responsibility, each of us getting informed, each of us speaking up. And what I love is that you don't feel like it's on your shoulders. Yeah. Well, I think that writing the book helped me release that. I feel like my life experiences, my cumulative life experiences gave me this collection of knowings, witnessings, knowings, and they were in their totality. If I could tell the story well, there was a richness to them that would bring the research alive, that would bring these things that are tend to read as cold, you know, mm-hmm. science tends to read as cold, but this richness of this story could bring it to life in a way that kind of hit hearts and minds. I felt like, okay, I've if I can finish this book and I can do my best on it and I can really feel like I did my best, then it's up to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Can be impacted by it, be impacted or not be impacted. They can take action or not take action, but I can't carry this anymore. Like I need to move on. I felt like it was really taking over my life for many years, my concerns about my peers and the future generations of peers. I'm a mother of a daughter and a son and just to have them come from this, like these two pro athlete parents, like there's a high likelihood just genetically, they're going to be drawn to sports, even if I don't nudge them any direction that I'm, instead of feeling excited about that, I feel scared. Like, Mm. okay, I better do something. I love that story. I love the idea that our 
listening to what's calling us and executing on it as best we can. And then we let it go. And there's so much humanity in that and embracing that responsibility as best you can, embracing your art as best you can. And then going, yeah, now I'm a human and I get to move on and do other things. Yes, I get to rest now (laughs) a little bit. I just want to extra call out what Lauren just said, because I think it is so important for the sustained creative life, especially if you identify as a woman or someone who's been marginalized or oppressed and you feel like there is a bigger mission to your work, your creative work. And it is okay to say, all right, I'm doing this and then I get to move on. It's essential to stay out of burnout, why bother, and out of the question of or the quagmire of it's too late. And I'm writing a substack all around it's not too late, but what are the reasons why we fall into burnout, why bother, and it's too late? And I think one of them is because we think we have to keep going back and serving, or just from a creative standpoint, we think we have to keep going back and resurrecting, finishing, even marketing a project. Things get to have ends. They get to have end dates. I did an interview with another client, Shannon Watts, a few weeks ago that you can find on wherever you get your podcast. And Shannon served as the founder and leader of Moms Demand Action, which is now the largest volunteer organization against gun violence in the United States, for 10 years. And now she's like, yeah, it was time to step down. I did an incredible job. And now I get to move on and do other things. And that's okay. That's part of our humanity. And it's part of how we continue a sustainable, creative life. Been a lot of opportunities that I've missed out on this year because I was so tired at Project. And there, if I had taken a different mindset, I think I could have really capitalized on the book and found a way to continue pushing and leading and monetizing something mm-hmm. in different ways. But I just, when I really like thought about what I wanted to do. Do I really want to do that anymore? And I thought sometimes you need to create a space so other people can move into leadership. And and I just thought, I don't feel called to like drive myself in this space anymore. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me what's next, if they ask me if I can do certain things, I'm like, I'm recovering from the process of writing the book. If you have any questions, I recommend you Read the book. Read the book. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people like, oh, I see that you wrote this book. Buy the book for other people. I really respect that stepping down, though. So I'm glad. I'm really glad that you're letting yourself do this. I, I, knowing the the struggles that you went through to write the book and struggling with depression while you were writing the book, I think it's I'm 1000% for you. Oh, thanks. Taking, taking the time. And I wanted to ask you that because you were super open about being depressed when you were during some of the writing of the book. Yeah. Do you think it was because revisiting many of those intense times and memories, losing your dad, the way that borderline eating disorders affected your writing career in some ways? Or do you think it was the pandemic? Well, one of my writing partners here in town decided to set aside the memoir she was writing about a family member struggling with addiction Mm -hmm. because it just was too hard. It was too hard on her, on her mental health, well-being and stuff. And and I fully respect that and understand that. And I think the writing about the topics definitely contributed to mm-hmm. a fragile mental state. Mm-hmm. And I, I've thought about it a lot because I want to be able to create again and I don't want yeah. to end up in that place again. And so, but I also think, yeah, the pandemic, social isolation. And then also I, I was in the process of realizing that my spouse and I needed to separate in the pandemic, like locked down and like a lot of people their relationships kind of got like a huge magnifying glass on them. And 
experienced strain in ways that was like, what are we doing? And then similar with just identity. A lot of mm-hmm. people went through and like, what am I doing with my life? How am I spending mm-hmm. my time? Mm-hmm. So I think I was undergoing like a big personal shift and transformation. Mm-hmm. Maybe writing a book right when you're about to be 40 and have a midlife crisis isn't necessarily the best time. Like maybe, oh, I should, I maybe 10 more years or <laughs> maybe for a perfect time. <laughs> I didn't come out the other side. <laughs> Actually, all jokes aside, I wonder if the process of of telling your story for this larger purpose that you had been working on and worrying about and coaching athletes around and it allowed that ending to happen in a way yeah. that maybe it couldn't have. The big changes in my life were to make. Mm-hmm. I do think the process of writing the book helped make a lot of sense out of my life, right? You can think you know what your memoir is going to be about. You can even think what you know, I've got, here's the story I'm going to tell, here are the main points, and here's the larger story. But you actually, the process of writing it is where you really figure it out. And some of the things you figure out are like, whoa, holy cow. Especially a lot of stuff with my relationship with my dad, which unearthed a lot of relationships with like pleasing, Mm -hmm. um, with my relationship to men in general, with the patriarchy, and just how like made me triple down on feeling determined not to live within the grips of that anymore. And so I, I examined all the ways my life was working. It was like, how can I really truly be free from this? Great. I mean, my co-parent, my ex is an awesome person. I was not in like an abusive relationship or anything like that. Yeah. It was more, I'm a bisexual woman. I had like suppressed that part of me for mm-hmm. most of my adult life. I think I just had lived very much on script and mm. tried to make a lot of acceptable or exceptional choices to others. And so, yeah, writing this book about trying to free other young people and older women and anybody from those forces in their own lives. I was like, whoa, I'm still, I'm still trapped by a lot of these things myself. Maybe that caused the depression. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're depressed sometimes. We're going to be depressed for so many reasons, but in in authenticity or in out of being alignment can definitely be one of them. Yeah, for sure. The the dreams and desires that now need our attention that Mm -hmm. haven't been getting them. And truly, the most transformative thing I ever did was write a memoir. It didn't get published. It didn't end up working. But the four years I worked on that probably changed me more than anything. So yeah, Can not to be more t- about that. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> have you already told stories? Okay, well, it's up to you. I think I have told it here, but um, you know, for me, it was a lot of looking at stories that I believed. For me, a deep story was that nobody ever liked me and that I never belonged, and I had to face the fact that I'm actually. <laughs> you made yourself not belong, (laughs) you know, of course, I'm sure some people don't like me, but uh, you did that. And so that was your own story that you created and then found proof for. Mm. Um, It was definitely one of the insights. Uh, And it allowed me to move here when we left Bainbridge and moved to Colorado and really make a much richer life for myself because I refused to buy into that story as much, right? Yeah. Of course, it still creates a- Still there. Yeah. I think the big one for me was- that I'm only lovable when I accomplish things. Mm. Um, And that value is that you never get to keep it because you have to continue. You have to do it. You have to do it again. Yeah. Continue accomplishing and proving. And so that's been huge for me is like allowing myself to try to love myself more, try to be Mm. confident within myself, stop looking for external validation from that. And I think that also contributed to me turning down a lot of the post book opportunities because Mm -hmm. I was trying to kind of just like, listen to, do I, or do I not actually want to do that? 
Or Mm -hmm. do I feel like I have to do that in order to stay relevant or Mm -hmm. to be successful or to be approved of or to be legit? And the fact of the matter was I was tired. I was going through massive personal change and I just, yeah, just didn't want to be in that trap anymore. Yeah, it feels like one of the things that is happening for us as humans post-pandemic. What are my real desires? What do I really want my life to look like? I mean, obviously, that's a very privileged question to get to ask. Yeah. We, all, we all have lots of extenuating circumstances that make us need to do things that we don't necessarily feel are our real desires to pay the bill. Yeah. But just being able to ask that question and explore it feels like something that is agitating and growing and changing things. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I think that the way that shows up for me is that most of my career has been success and monetary stuff came from being a little bit important to a lot of people. That really pulls you into a million pieces. I think you just, you're trying to like do the dance monkey thing for like (laughs) so many people. (laughs) And I think that I just realized that what my heart craved was to be more important to way fewer people to be like the more narrow and deep community and relationships. And so in order to do that, I needed to allow there to be space in my schedule in life to do that. I mean, that could mean like a much more humble and less publicly celebrated next career or next pursuit. And that that's very off track from what I've done for the last 20 years. But that's what's I, feeling way better to me. And does it feel lighter, juicier, yeah, all of it. Yeah. yeah. The, your- the less time I can spend imagining what other people will want or desire me to do, the wow. easier it is to yeah. like get connected to myself and the, that handful of people that I really yeah. want to create lasting, meaningful, deep relationships with. Well, and it was like the, a lot of the stuff I did that was more publicly facing, there were times in my life where I really enjoyed it. Like I genuinely uh-huh. did. It's uh-huh. more just that I gave myself a chance to go, is this still meaningful to me? Does it still feel like how I want to spend my time and daily energy? You used to lead writing and running retreats. Do those appeal to you to do anymore? They they do. Those appeal to me. That very much fits in with like a small group of people to create like a deep experience with a small group of people. Lauren's retreats are amazing if you like running and writing together in beautiful places. And if you like dance yoga and writing all genres all levels check out my writing retreats you can just go to jenniferloudon.com and you'll see retreats at the top and we always have an ongoing list you want to get on that list that's who we tell about our retreats i lead retreats in taos the poconos and we're thinking maybe 2025 ireland or iceland so check those out And um, they're truly some of the most nourishing, deep group, spiritual self-care, but also incredibly transformative for all genres, all levels of writers. Again, Jennifer Loudon, L-O-U-D-E-N.com. And then just right up there on that nav bar, you'll see retreats and you'll click there and you can read all about them and get on that list. And I do, I've always been like a teacher Mm -hmm. and I've always been a vulnerable, open-hearted person. You are. I think you're like doing that for 70,000 people on Instagram or like my newsletter no longer feels really great to me Mm -hmm. to do on a regular basis, like to put a lot of energy into consistently Mm -hmm. producing things. But to create these concentrated experiences does sound good. I'm in the process of getting ready to do it. Uh (laughs) I haven't launched any new dates yet. I would like to do some of those. They're beautiful. I got to be your writing person at one and it was really beautiful. Yeah, you did a great job. And the other thing that appeals to me is like writing essentially blogs again. Yeah, why? Back to the beginning of just writing 800 word 
a thousand word musings on things and doing it like for free for a little bit. Mm. Cause that's how I started. I felt very liberated when I was doing it for free, like honed my skills again. It gave me confidence in my craft. And then through that process, bigger ideas that could maybe mm-hmm. be sold or pitched came out of that space. But I haven't written, I've written one article in since my book came out in January. So it's been a dry spell for sure. I didn't, returning to the love of it would be nice. I'm going to repackage that for you. Not a dry spell, but a very <laughs> necessary time to refill and oh, celebrate you. the changes in your life and find this new ground and this new voice. That's true. I will reframe it that way as well. <laughs> so I love to ask my guests a last question. What do you want to learn next? Gosh, that is a good question. Man, you really, yeah, it should be so simple. <laughs> right? Sometimes it is. And it's like, I want to learn how to salsa dance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and other times it's like, I want to learn to be, you know, Gandhi. I don't know. Continuing to learn how to be content with less outside validation is mm-hmm. a continued process for me. I mean, from like, just like a more funsy perspective, I think woodworking is something that I feel like I've really healed a lot of my relationship with my dad who has passed. And that the books, writing the book helped with that a lot. And now when I think of him, I mostly think of the really positive, beautiful things about him. Woodworking was something I loved about him. And I feel like we had really fun experiences of building small projects together. I would try to help him. I'd be his little assistant, but I don't actually know how to build anything myself. So it just feels like it's one step away for me. And mm-hmm. I'm going to get my garage cleaned up, get a workbench, a couple key tools and I own an old house that needs things. So be cool to be able to do it myself. I think there's something too about plastic arts and working with our hands and that soul work of that tangibleness. Yes. That really is a lovely counter to living in our heads as writers and or, and or sometimes public people. Yeah, that is probably part of the appeal, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, my friend. It has been a heartwarming conversation. I'm so glad to see you again. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for your help and helping me get that book out into the world. This time of my life would not be possible if I hadn't been able to complete that. So thank you. That's awesome. I hope you'll check out Lauren's book, Good for a Girl, a Woman Running in a Man's World. It's truly beautifully written and magnificent read just for itself and the larger societal and cultural questions about being a woman in a man's world. And it's especially fantastic gift for anyone you know who is an athlete or uh, coaching, uh, working with women and girls athletes. It's just a great book. I was so happy to get to be part of it. But I'm doing a really fun, new, powerful project over at Jennifer Loudon. But I'm doing a really fun, new project. I really hope you'll check it out. Totally free. It's over on Substack, which is just a cool community. You don't have to comment or be part of it if you don't want. You can just read and we'll be doing some live events and things over there as well. And the link for that is Jennifer Loudon, all one word, Jennifer Loudon dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. So Jennifer Loudon dot substack. And you can just subscribe. If you're already on my email list, you're already subscribed. So don't worry. But check it out, like click through on one of the newsletters that comes through or go over there now and subscribe. And I just think it's a really cool project about exploring all kinds of dimensions about how we think something is 
too late, baby. Whether it's too late to pursue a dream, whether it's too late to reignite a friendship or a passionate partnership that's gone dry. It's an extension of my book, Why Bother?, but in a whole new way. Because, you know, we have these themes in life that we keep re-exploring or themes that we leave behind. One of the themes of this conversation. So I hope to see you over there. And who knows, maybe we'll do some bonus episodes in the future. And I really hope to see you at a writing retreat if writing is your thing. And you can find information about that again at jenniferladen.com and then just click on retreats in the nav bar. Thank you so much for being here. And most of all, keep creating out loud. Mm -hmm.